Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So good to be with you all this morning, singing praises to the name of the Lord Most High. Uh, Let's continue our worship this morning as we turn to Acts 21. Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through the rest of the chapter. But for our scripture reading, we're just going to read verses 18 and 19. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 21, verses 18 and 19. This is God's word. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship your name for what's been done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful to be known as your sons and daughters, adopted by your grace and for your glory. So as Chris said, we just submit this time to you. We pray that you would be glorified in it. And uh, yes, change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go through the entire chapter uh, verse by verse here, but I wanted to read those first couple verses. You know, one of the most extraordinary statements in all of Scripture, at least in my mind, is found in a letter that Paul wrote just weeks before the events of our passage here in Acts 21. You'll remember in the beginning of the 20th chapter, Paul had returned to Greece, specifically to Corinth, on a follow-up visit after sending a couple letters to the church out there. And it's during these travels that he pens one of the most important letters in the whole of Scripture— It makes one of the most extraordinary statements in all of the Bible. And of course, I'm talking about his epistle to the Romans. Now, I want you to turn there with me. Turn there with me to the ninth chapter. I want you to see this statement with your own eyes because it's going to have a significant impact on our time together today. Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you. It's on page 1524. If if you want to look at it, I want you all to see it with your own eyes. Don't take my word for it. Romans chapter 9. Every time I read this verse, I just can't believe he would say it. But here it is in black and white. Look at verse 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption, the sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, how many of us in here are comfortable with saying that this morning? Not just that 
You would die for another person, sacrifice your life for another person, and not even like a close friend or a loved one, but broadly speaking, just someone of your own ethnicity or heritage. Would you die for them? Well, dying for someone is one thing, but that's not what Paul says here in Romans chapter 9. Not only would he die for him or them, but Paul, the great apostle who had more knowledge of the glories of Christ than anyone, says that he would be cut off, separated, eternally accursed for his people that they might know salvation through God's Messiah? I mean, I'll just be straight up with you. I'm not there yet. (laughs) I couldn't in good conscience before you say that about myself. Dying for someone, sure. But being eternally separated from Christ that they might know him, as noble as that sounds, I'm just not there. I want to be with Christ more than anything. How about you? Well, that's what Paul says here. He says, yeah, I'd do it. That's incredible. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Keep that in mind. Uh, Paul's attitude toward his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as we dive into our passage today. Uh, You remember last week we heard of uh, some disciples from Tyre and a prophet from Caesarea who said, man, don't go up to Jerusalem. You'll be persecuted. You'll be bound in Jerusalem. And remember what Paul said? He said, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I am ready to die for the name. So here he goes, and his delegation goes with him, delivering the offering that he had just collected for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He's here. Luke says in verse 17, the brothers welcomed him gladly. Now, as you turn back to Acts 21, go ahead and do that now. You'll need to follow along this whole time uh, with me in the text. Turn back to Acts 21. You'll notice in your outline that we have five sets of two points. I thought a 10-point outline would be a little ridiculous. So five sets of two points. <laughs> Set number one, verse 18, Luke writes this. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done, uh, which God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. So here we see both the comfort and the commission. Notice again, they welcomed Paul gladly. Now, whether this was because of that big bag of cash he brought with him or uh, just a description of old friends catching up, I don't know. What I do know, again, is that this is a totally different reaction than the one he got in his first visit back to Jerusalem. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. They didn't even think he was a believer, a disciple. Now they welcome him gladly. There was great comfort. There was great excitement. There was great encouragement, especially when Paul begins telling them about the great things that he himself had accomplished throughout these districts and provinces. Is that what Luke says in verse 19? No, Luke says, after they greeted him, exchanged pleasantries, uh, Paul began to relate one by one the things which God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. You know, that's one of the hallmarks of of a true minister, by the way. Uh, 
they don't take credit for the achievements and successes of their ministry. Well, this glory deflection was certainly true of Paul, and this makes sense, right? God chose him. God called him. God changed him on the road to Damascus, and God commissioned him to not only bear the name of the Lord Jesus to his people, to Jews, to his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, but that he would take the good news of the gospel of grace to the Gentile, to the non-Jew, to the pagan, the heathen, the dogs. That was his commission. This was his charge from God. In fact, he even elaborates on this in his letter to the Galatians. He says, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So there you go. Peter and James to the Jews, Barnabas and Paul to the Gentile, right? So he gives this report. Says, here's the update. This is what God, this is why God planned it the way he did. Look what he has done. God gets the credit. God gets the recognition. God gets the acclaim. Uh, God gets the accolades, and God gets all the glory. Not man, right? He says, listen, guys. The Lord has had me all over the place. In Lystra and Derby, they... They tried to stone me to death there, but the Lord brought many souls to himself. Then I had a vision of the Macedonian man who told me to go over there, and I went there. The Lord saved a bunch of people. Then I met the sweet girl named Lydia. met her up in Philippi. She believed. She was baptized. In fact, her whole household believed. Then we cast out a demon out of some slave girl. They threw us in jail, and the Lord ended up saving the jailer as well, him and his whole family, and they were baptized. We went to Berea. Athens, Ephesus a couple of times, and all the while God was bringing sinful men and women to himself by his sovereign grace alone. It's been amazing. He may have said something like that. Well, look at the response in verse 20. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. In other words, things haven't been so bad around these parts either, Paul. I mean, apart from the famine and the persecution, of course, but, you know, God's been saving folks down here as well. And you know what? We're seeing men and women, our own people, Jewish people, the same people that Paul referenced in Romans chapter 9, coming to Christ in droves by the thousands. In fact, it's said that there were uh, somewhere between thirty and 50,000 Jewish converts to Christianity living in Jerusalem at that time. That's not bad. But notice what James says next in verse 20. This will become the theme for not only this week's text, but for the next two weeks as Paul stands before the Jews and the Sanhedrin, the chief priests of Israel. Look what he says. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those, uh, of those and they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you, Paul. So he says, Paul could have said, oh, is that right? What have they been told about me? Well, verse 21, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. They say, what then is to be done? 
they will certainly hear that you have come. Now, maybe I missed something here. I mean, we've been in this book a couple years now. We've looked at various testimonies, uh, accounts, other epistles, other letters that Paul wrote during his missionary journeys. I don't remember seeing one account where Paul told Jewish men and women who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and not have their kids circumcised. Uh, Do you remember seeing anything like that? No. You know why you don't remember seeing anything like that from the Apostle Paul? Because that's not what the Apostle Paul taught the Jews who were among the Gentiles. This was slander of the apostle. These were false accusations from religious opponents who had gotten in the ears of some in the church, men making gross exaggerations, uh, exaggerations, accusing the brethren, spreading demonic and satanic lies to further their own cause. And again, we see it here in the text. Paul constantly dealt with guys like this. He He dealt with these guys constantly throughout his ministry. Now he has to deal with them again in Jerusalem. Do you remember a few weeks ago we quoted Alex Strauch on the definition of a slander? It's worth repeating today. He said, a slanderer is one who spreads lies, false rumors, malicious gossip, and innuendos and are capable of inflicting long-term irreparable damage on relationships and reputations of others. He said they're often controlled by anger and jealousy, bitterness, or wounded feelings, and they may even believe the lies they are spreading. In many cases, the targets of, the church, uh, of such slander will be elders and deacons, he said. Remember those super apostles back in Corinth? They slandered Paul like you wouldn't believe, repeatedly. And he was grieved because the church didn't have his back. They were allowing these guys, these ravenous wolves, to come in and devour vulnerable sheep, separating them from the flock and railing against him and his crew. These guys were primarily Judaizers. Okay? They were known for telling the Christians that they had to become Jewish converts before they could uh, convert to Christianity or become Christians. They were required to adhere to the law of Moses or the Torah, along with the religious customs and traditions within Judaism, including circumcision and even a ritual cleansing or baptism, uh, which was said to purify them. But they were being baptized not into Christ, but into Judaism. Then they could follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they could be Christians. So these guys had an agenda. But like so many slanders and liars before and, and ever since, they were actually just accusing Paul of what they were doing, but in reverse. But, but in reality, Paul was, was telling these Gentiles, listen, not only do you not have to become a Jew first to become a Christian, but if you did, you'd quickly realize you have a huge problem here as you are absolutely and totally incapable of keeping the law in your own strength. You are totally and completely spiritually bankrupt. And your only hope is to, by God's grace, place your faith in the only one who has kept the law in its entirety, and that is his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like everyone else, including the patriarchs, you can be saved, not of your works, not of your adherence to the the law, not of your circumcision, or even your own ethnicity, but only through faith in God. Only through faith in his glorious gospel of grace. But Paul did not actively teach Jews to forsake the law, to forsake Moses, or even forsake being circumcised. That's proven by what happens next. 
Okay, look at verse 23. The elders say, do this, therefore, what we tell you. Okay, now, by this time, there could have been as many as 100 elders in the church of of Jerusalem. Think about it, 30,000 people. You're going to need a strong plurality to lead and feed and protect and guide these new believers in Christ. Now it's the elders, note, who are telling the apostle, do what we tell you. Uh, We have four men who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Then all will know that there is nothing to these things which have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, uh, having decided that they should keep from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what is strangled and from sexual immorality. Exactly. Even the elders make it clear they're not talking about Gentiles here. Here's what we told them uh, to abstain from in that letter that's recorded in Acts chapter 15 of the council. But this is not about Gentiles, this is all about the Jews. What should the Jews in Jerusalem do? Verse 26. Then, just then, Paul pushed James and the elders out of the way. He made a big scene. He walked out of the room shouting, Forget the law of Moses. I'm not taking any vow. I'm not paying for anyone's vow. These Jews, along with the thousands under your watch, should let go of this whole law thing and get on with their free lives in Christ. And then he walked out and he shook the dust off his feet. Is that what he did? Is that what Luke says? No. Verse 26. Then Paul took them in. The next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. For the sake of unity and in accordance with his zeal for the law, he went with them. And and is this a big surprise to anyone? Really? He just took a Nazarite vow himself three chapters ago. He, He shaved his head, he purified himself. This was totally voluntary. Uh, He wanted to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost or the Festival of Weeks, meaning he still observed the holy days, just like Jesus, just like Peter, just like all the earliest Jewish believers. Not only that, but he just had Timothy circumcised in Acts chapter 16, right? He took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. In the next chapter, he'll tell an unruly mob of Jews who are about to meet here in a moment, I'm zealous for the law of God just as you are. I mean, what do you want from the guy? Seriously. It it was just lies. It was slander. It was a defamation of his righteous character. And and this is a, a good lesson for us even today. Uh, you get around someone who just seethes with animosity uh, toward the church or otherwise, we need to be prepared to not fall into their deception. And it's easy to do for all of us uh, to get into the backbiting, to the gossip. But Lord, help us. We, We need to have the discernment to know that they might not be giving us the full story. Or even worse, we may find ourselves unknowingly aligning with someone who has malicious intent to not only cause division, but to hurt or harm others because they think they've been harmed in some way. And misery loves company, right? Well, that's what we see with Paul here. 
some of these non-believing Jews, they, they had it out for Paul. So they told some of these believers these lies, and it got around the church like it always does. Next thing you know, oh, well, you heard about Paul, right? Can you believe what he said about Moses? Can you believe what he's telling those people about their kids? He should mind his own business. It can happen really quickly to all of us. So you've got to be on guard. Protect yourselves. Protect yourself. Protect your family. Now, moving on. Now, some commentators believe that Paul made a damnable error in his compromise uh, to the elders in Jerusalem, that he should have been more firm in his position, more willing to take a stand against uh, adherence to the law, the customs, and the traditions, that, that he should have protested this vow. He should have made the point that they were living lives full of types and shadows, and what they were doing was unnecessary at best and blasphemous at worst. But it seems to me, if you take into consideration all of his writings and his exaltations to his people, he wasn't anti-law in the slightest. He was just anti-justification through the law. He was anti-conversion to Judaism before Christ. He, he was anti-jump through these ritualistic hoops, these ceremonies and customs in order to appease your God commands that were held in such high esteem by the Judaizers. But I don't see, and I cannot see him condemning Jewish believers for holding on to some of the traditions that they had grown accustomed to for thousands of years. If their conscience felt it was appropriate, he even said, the faith which you have have as your own conviction before God. In fact, now that they were in Christ, if they were truly in Christ, they had the freedom, freedom to either adhere to their old practices or forsake them. They could, adhere, they could do either. That's why even today, when you see Messianic Jews, ethnic Jews who grew up in this culture but came to Christ, still holding on to some of these traditions, uh, not in a salvific manner, but in order to demonstrate their zeal for their history, we got dueling. <laughs> I love it. Alex always said, uh, if you're not crying, you're dying. <laughs> and, you know, I love the dueling cries. <laughs> now, again, they're holding on to these traditions, not in a salvific manner, but in order to demonstrate their zeal for their history, their culture. I don't think this is a bad thing. I can't condemn them. It becomes bad, it becomes harmful when people begin to uh, place themselves and others under the yoke of Judaism, which even they couldn't bear, and then try to pretend that they are somehow in a different category of holiness for being Jewish Christians. I can assure you they are not. If anything, like Paul says in Romans 14, they are demonstrating that they are the weaker brother for not being able to let go of these types and shadows. Amen. But it's understandable, because again, there's a cultural connection. There's a history, there's tradition, which we all know at times is hard to shake. Think of these four guys, okay? You got to have sympathy for these four guys, right? After, and, and these thousands of Jews who were zealous for the law, this is all they've ever known. This was their way of life. Christianity, though alluded to in the Old Testament prophetic text concerning the Messiah, it was all new, it was all brand new. I mean, we're talking 57 AD here. At most, the Apostle Paul had only been a Christian for 27 years. Now, there's some people in this room right now who have been a Christian longer than the Apostle Paul was at this point. 27 years. And we have the benefit of a completed New Testament, right? 
I mean, I mean, maybe some of them saw the, the letters to the Galatian church. Maybe some of them saw those letters to the Corinthian church, but no Colossians, no uh, Ephesians, no Philippians, Roman, uh, no First Timothy. These four guys, all Jewish Christians, were essentially new converts who were largely dependent upon the words of prophets. And as we just saw, false prophets abounded, right? We can't expect them to just throw away everything they've ever known, thousands of years of cultural distinctives as the chosen people of God, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like that, especially when they weren't commanded to do so. And they still aren't commanded to do so. No, I don't see any issue with Jews wanting to be Jews in a way that honors their heritage through traditions and customs, especially if they believe that they're glorifying God through it. As long as they don't try to tell me that this somehow makes them some kind of super Christian. What I don't get, and what I will likely never understand, is when Gentiles or non-Jews place themselves voluntarily under the yoke of Judaism and Judaistic practices. They deliberately place themselves under subjection to the cultural laws of the Torah, and then they try to act like they're holier class because they're trying to fool everyone into thinking they're Jewish just because they don't eat certain foods or celebrate certain holidays. I cannot take these people seriously. I can't. Gentile converts to Messianic Judaism. I just don't get it. Why would you do that? That's why I was going to originally call this sermon, Go Yoke, Go Broke. (laughs) But we decided against it in the last minute. (laughs) But even then, these aren't the people that Paul was dealing with here. He didn't tell Jews not to follow Moses or not get circumcised. A Jew doesn't stop being a Jew when he comes to Christ. Paul knew that. In fact, he spends a good portion of Romans chapter 9 telling us that they are true Israelites. Those Jews who God saved not because of flesh, but because of promise. Now, these were just slanderous lies. They were stemmed from the hatred of and jealousy of his opponents. So he takes these guys, these four guys. He purifies himself with them. We've talked about this vow before, the Nazarite vow. They shaved their heads in a symbolic demonstration that they were separated from the world. They were fully devoted to God. Sometimes it lasted a week. Most times it lasted 30 days. Sometimes it was a lifetime appointment. You think of guys like John the Baptist, Samson in the Old Testament. Um, but before, uh, he caught them at the tail end of the vow, paid their way, and it seems like everyone in the church and the apostles, the four men, the elders, the believers were satisfied. Everyone's ha- it seems like everyone's happy here, right? Well, not so fast. That's a, good, that's a good sound. Not so fast. Look at verse 27.3 in your outline. Now, when the seven days were almost over, so the vow wasn't even completed yet. That's what that says. When the seven days were almost over, The Jews from Asia, upon noticing him in the temple, began to throw all the crowd into confusion and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So again, look at the logic of the slander. Okay, Paul's in the temple. He's under a vow. He's got a great haircut. Uh, 
he's paid for these guys. He paid for their sacrifice. He paid the expenses for their offering to God. They're likely from Ephesus. Uh, these guys, likely from Ephesus, who we'll see in a moment, all of a sudden look and say, oh, there he is. This, this couldn't be him. Is that, is that Paul over there? There's Paul, the heretic, the apostate. Now, you remember back in chapter 19 when Luke told us what was going on in Ephesus? We're going to see these guys are probably from Ephesus here. Remember back in 19 that he had Paul there for two years where all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. When he went into the synagogues and he preached the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God, that the Messiah had come, the Lord Jesus Christ, we preached the way of salvation when he was persuading both Jews and Greeks daily in the hall of Tyrannus, where God was doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. You remember that? Miracles were happening. Demons were being cast out, which became known to all, both Jew and Greek, who lived in Ephesus. Luke says that fear fell upon them all. The name of Jesus was being magnified. Men and women started turning from their idolatrous ways. They started turning from witchcraft. They got all their books and all their trinkets and all their idols, and they took them into a big pile, and they burned them all in front of everybody. It was wonderful. Yet, he told the Ephesian elders, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials, which came upon me through the plots of who? The Jews. The Jews. Meaning there was a contention of Jews in Ephesus who had unceasingly and repeatedly plotted against the Apostle Paul, opposing the way. And here they are in the temple. And this makes sense, right? During Pentecost, this feast from all over uh, the world would come to Jerusalem. They would celebrate the feast. They're in the temple at this time, and you can just see them again. Who, wait a sec. Is that who I think it is? Is that? No, it can't be. There's this Christ man. There's the Jesus follower who turned our world upside down. Let's call him out. Help! They say, here he is. And they take their false accusations even a step further. Now, verse 28. Now they're saying, He teaches to everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. Luke even says in verse 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they're trying to accuse him of profaning the temple by bringing a Gentile into the inner courts. But again, they didn't have any proof of this. Plus, if that were the case, if he truly brought Trophimus into the temple, it wouldn't have been Paul's neck on the line, but Trophimus' neck. In fact, Trophimus would have faced the death penalty for going into the inner courts. Listen to this. The temple in the New Testament times was surrounded by three courts. The innermost court was the court of Israel where Jewish men could offer their sacrifices. Now, only consecrated priests actually entered the temple building itself. Only the high priest could enter into the inner sanctuary or the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. The second court was the court of the women, where Jewish families could gather uh, for prayer and worship. The outer court on both sides was the court of the Gentile, open to all who would worship God. Now, if any Gentile went beyond the barrier into the second court, he or she would be liable to the death penalty. Josephus records, When you went through these first cloisters into the second court of the temple, there was a partition made of stone all around. It was about four feet high. 
Its construction was very elegant. Upon it stood pillars of equal distances from one another, declaring the law of purity. Some in Greek, some in Roman uh, letters, that no foreigner should go within the sanctuary. In fact, they've even found some of these tablets that hung just outside of these courts of the temple, which read, no stranger or pagan visitor is to enter within the balustrade round uh, the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. They just kill you. Now they're, these guys are claiming that he knowingly brought one of these foreigners into the court of Israel. And they're saying, this proves not only that Paul hates Moses, but he clearly hates the temple, this place, and therefore he hates all of us. Boy, that's a far cry from I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish or grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He didn't hate his people. Are you kidding me? These guys knew exactly what they were saying. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were liars. They were slanders. They were inciters. They wanted chaos. They wanted disorder. They wanted confusion. And like with any mob, like any body without a head, that's exactly what they got. They used what was nearest and dearest to them to accomplish their goal. That's why Alexander McLaren said this. He says, it's always easier to rouse men to fight for their religion than to live by it. Oh, yeah. That's what we see here. It's a fickle mob, a manipulated people, a crowd fueled by raw emotion and passion. Luke says in verse 30, all the city was stirred. The people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They drag him out of the temple. Immediately, the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So here we see the conspiracy and the confusion. And we see how quickly things can get out of hand here. This whole city was stirred, Luke says. Now, this is maybe millions of people we're talking about here at this point for this festival, but certainly in the temple and the area around the temple, we're talking thousands of men, okay? Religious zealots uh, whipped into a frenzy. They're out for blood. That's what it says. They're seeking to kill him. They wanted to kill him, murder him based off the lies and the false accusations of these Ephesians Jews. But notice Luke says they wanted to drag him out of the temple. This is classic. They wanted to drag him out of the temple. Why? Well, so they could kill him without defiling the place themselves. That's right. So they could kill him based off a lie, yet not profane the temple by touching a dead corpse within it. These are some holy men, right? They're religious hypocrites. They did the same thing with Jesus, if you remember. They wouldn't go into Pontius Pilate's headquarters. Oh, we can't go in the, we can't go in the place of a Gentile. Meanwhile, they're murdering the Messiah. They're hypocrites, holy hypocrites. Notice uh, there in verse 31, Luke says that report of the commotion came up to the commander of the Roman cohort. Uh, Again, this is fascinating. During the construction of the second temple, uh, Herod the Great uh, built a citadel. Did I do a picture? Oh, good. He he made a citadel. This was an elevated fortress that overlooked and protected the temple and the whole of the Temple Mount. One writer said, quote, the location allows them to keep an eye on the potentially volatile temple without violating its sanctity. 
uh, from one of the turrets just over 100 feet high. If a problem arises, they can react quickly using two sets of stairs running from the fortress into the outer court. Luke says in verse 32, the commander who was over 1,000 troops took soldiers and centurions. Now, how many men was a centurion over? A hundred. That's right, 100. So, since this is in the plural, you're right. It likely means that there were at least 200 men, 200 soldiers, but uh, probably more soldiers rushed down to this chaotic crowd, maybe some on horseback and whatnot. Luke says, once the Jews saw the troops, they stopped beating Paul. So, this is not a game. This is not a joke. He's literally being beaten to death by a bloodthirsty mob when the commander came up, took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with two chains, he began asking who he was and what he had done. There you go, old Agabus, he was right again. He said, this is how you're going to end up. Remember, he took the belt. You go up to Jerusalem, this is how you're going to be bound. Well, in verse 34, the commander asked the mob, what's he done? But they didn't even know. Among the crowds, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he uh, ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was actually carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd here. They picked him up and they carried him through this mob. For the multitude of people kept following them, shouting away with him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian that has some time ago raised a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Again, Josephus tells us of a band of religious zealots during that time. Okay, they were assassins. They were known as dagger men. They would shank people. They would, they would commit murders in broad daylight, especially at these festivals. They would brutally stab to death aristocrats in the midst of crowds in the temple. Then they would slip away unseen. A lot of times what they would do is they'd walk up behind a guy and they'd give him a quick shank and the guy would flail around and they'd say, help, this guy's in trouble. Well, no kidding, he's in trouble. You just shanked him in the kidney or the liver. What? I don't know. Anyhow, well, this is uh, who the commander assumed Paul was, but verse 39, Paul says, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a, city of no, uh, a citizen of no insignificant city. He actually does this a few times in the next uh, couple chapters, all seemingly at the last moment, right before he's about to get it. Here he says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Next time when he's talking to the Jews, he says, I was raised and trained in Jerusalem, the feet of Gamaliel. Then later... Just at the right time, right before he's whipped, at the orders of that same Roman commander, by the way, he'll say, I was from Tarsus, and I was in Jerusalem, but oh yeah, I'm also a Roman citizen. Just like that, he's released. Next week, though, we'll get to that next week. For now, just outside of the temple, he says to the commander, I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. What people? The people who are just trying to kill him. You remember our text from last week? Paul said, for I'm not only ready to be bound, but to even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. How could he say that? Well, because he knew he was right where he was supposed to be, in the sovereign will of the Lord Most High. So he had no problem facing this ravenous crowd who just minutes before were literally pummeling him to death. He says, let me at him. This would be a great opportunity for a gospel presentation. 
finally, in verse 40, when the commander had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. When there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Lord willing, that's what we'll pick up on next Lord's Day. Feel free to read ahead, though. For now, I just want to close with a couple words of exhortation, okay? Though this is a historical narrative and sometimes can be a challenge to uh, apply, I think we see a couple principles throughout. First of all, this matter of vows and customs and the festivals. Really what these things come down to, like so many other issues, uh, issues in the church today, is matters of conscience, Okay? This is a good reminder to us to be sensitive to the consciences of people who may not exactly have the same viewpoints as us in terms of methodology or practice. I suppose even the Gentile converts to Messianic Judaism would apply to that. The key thing that we can take away from Paul and his ministry is in his own words, that though he was free from all, he made himself a slave to all so that he may have won more. He said to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To the weak he became weak, that he might win the weak. He was willing to become all things to all men, and he did all things for the sake of the gospel, so that he may become a fellow partaker of it. But he did this without compromising on the foundational elements of the gospel, okay? The essential elements of the gospel. He was just referring to conscience issues here. He did not waver in his declaration of the truths of the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God, the deity of Christ, the justification or right standing before a holy God coming only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Meaning, we are not saved by what we do, but by faith in what's been done for us. That we did not earn our justification before the Father through our own deeds, but that our sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Amen? That's right. In the same way, we can have charity with those who may have different convictions and matters of conscience, but like Paul, we must never, ever, compromise on the foundational doctrines of the faith. Now, having said that, I wouldn't expect to receive the same charity from others. Uh, Second, and again, we'll get more into this next week, Lord willing, but we mustn't neglect to see the courage of Paul in this text. He was confident. He was convinced. He was certain that he was walking in the will of his Lord. That's why he was able to say, I'm not afraid to be bound, And I'm not afraid to be killed for Christ. Why? Well, because that's exactly what Christ said would happen to me. He told me that I would suffer. He told me the world would hate me. He told me that I would face affliction and trials on account of my faith. So when they came, either in the form of slander or physical affliction, he didn't act like some victim. He didn't recoil in fear. He took the opportunity to glorify God in what seemed to be a chaotic situation. He had a Christ-like attitude with regard to suffering. 
And how could he not? Like Matthew Henry said, Christ's followers cannot expect better treatment in the world than their master had. Do you believe that? Well, this type of mindset has given faithful men and women courage to stand firm in the fiercest storms and sufferings of life. Even, if, even in this book, we've seen uh, Stephen and Peter and John, Barnabas, Paul, many others. This, it's been the sentiment of countless saints since. John Bunyan, who was repeatedly attacked and berated by his opponents, said this. He said, Therefore I bind these lies and slanderous accusations to my person as an ornament. It belongs to my Christian profession to be vilified, slandered, reproached, and reviled. And since all this is nothing but that, as God is my conscience testify, I rejoice in being reproached for Christ's sake. I'm here to tell you, you can have the same confidence. You can have the same courage, but in order to do so, we must have our feet firmly fixed upon the foundation of the promises of the word of God as he's revealed himself in his holy and inspired scripture. And we must have our gaze continually fixed upon Jesus Christ and what's been done for us through his substitutionary sacrificial death. Now, we're going to look at Paul's continued affliction at the hands of the, his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, but next week. But we're also going to see how he was able to face his persecutors with boldness and courage, knowing that his Lord had gone through the very same things, all these similar trials in this very city just three decades before. As Peter said, for to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Are you ready? Are you ready? Again, more on that next week. For now, let's have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for, the, again, the opportunity just to come together to sing praises to your holy name. You are worthy of our praise, and it's a delight to give it to you. I want to pray, Lord, just for the people here that you would draw near to them this morning, that you would comfort their hearts, that you would remind them of your glory and your majesty, your holiness. And for anyone who's not here who's uh, anybody who's here who does not have saving faith, who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would show them through your text and by the power of your Holy Spirit that they can be saved by your grace alone if they would w- but recognize their utter depravity, their total depravity, their absolute inability to save themselves or even contribute to their salvation, but that they would cry out for a Savior that they would cry out for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We know nobody comes to you but through him. I pray, Lord, that you would make them aware of their sin, that they would repent of their sin, they would grasp firmly to the magnificent truths of your gospel, of the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.